You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, hi there. Welcome into the latest episode of the Show Before the Show podcast official podcast of minor league baseball i'm trying to be more settled and calm it was a wild trade deadline week actually really not as crazy as it could have been but you know i'm trying to keep things level-headed my name is tyler ron sam dykstra is in new york city hi sam hi tyler uh i legitimately thought a dog had walked into your room <laughs> and you were just saying hi to like <laughs> no like, she oh, okay this is she approached the, the door when i came in here and as soon as i sat down and got the microphone out she was like yeah you're not gonna be able to give me pets and she just turned around and walked away I was like, all right fine jerk <laughs> whatever she knows um, she does she knows you're you're gonna be otherwise engaged you're gonna be talking with that guy that i bothered every five seconds in the mountains of no we had a great time i know she was, like was calling fantastic. for me when i went on, she was. on a walk yeah it was great she uh yeah sam wandered away from the cabin was walking back like i could see him coming up the road and she was barking at him from like half a mile away like where where have you been come on back i need some pets we're, pal we're over here we're over here we're over here find <laughs> me sure follow my voice follow my voice well, hey, welcome into this week's episode of the show before the show podcast. As noted, the official podcast of Minor League Baseball. Uh, my name is Tyler Ron. His name is Sam Dykstra. Benjamin Hill's coming up in a little while. We'll hear from Ben. We'll hear from Josh Jackson. Uh, we got a fun interview conversation this week. Uh, we'll catch up with Ben on the road in upstate slash western New York. Um, I did not know that there was such a debate over the geographic designations of each. And not living there, I don't even want to wade into it. Yeah, I think it's technically central New York. Just oh, anybody is like yelling at us. I waited. I said Western slash Central. I have friends who like live in Rochester and they get angry if you say one thing or the other. But everything outside the city is upstate to people in the city, right? Like anything that you're discussing that's not in metropolitan New York City is all upstate. No, Uh, it's a whole thing. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I say it. Upstate starts at Poughkeepsie. Uh, you're going to find some people who say upstate starts at 72nd Street. Yeah, and yeah, that's they, true. They are jerks, so we don't need to acknowledge them. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a fun internet debate that pops up every six months, and everybody gets yeah, yeah, forgets we didn't settle on anything and we move on. You can post a nice X about it, Sam. Uh... A post, a post, as they're called now. And a Is repost. that what they're called? I thought they were called X's. They're not called X's. No. They, when you click the button now, it says post. And then when you try oh, to retweet dumb. something now, it's called repost, which is dumb. Yeah. I'm I'm done. I'm off of it. I'm off. I know, of it. yeah. I've made the I've made the clean break. I uh yeah, I don't know. The logo, I was just like, nah, I'm done with this. This is this is dumb now. Hey, <laughs> I'm still sending dumb. you in the now mail all of my dumb. tweets just so you see them. <laughs> Printing I want them you off one by copies. one. Yeah. Okay. I like that idea. I'll I'll put them into my binder, my Sam tweets archive. I don't think uh, it's great for the environment that I'm printing out sheets of paper with a single tweet <laughs> every time. But just one tweet each. And I they're just not want even you to blown be up. They're just like yeah. very small in the top corner of the page. It's uh for anybody who's gonna get angry, Sam doesn't actually do it, I promise. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, there's always room to to evolve on these sorts of topics. Maybe that is something that we discuss going. I did download my data 
off of it. I was like, you know what? Everything about the way this website is going has the makings of a class action lawsuit. Maybe I'm going to need this someday. Maybe I'm going to be cut in on some big sum of money. Apparently, there was like a big settlement with Meta and like everybody's eligible for money, although I haven't been on Facebook in like 12 years. But still, you know, maybe we're this is how we're all getting rich. We're just going to sue the pants off of the social media people. Yeah, I'm going to still keep working just in case that doesn't work. <laughs> just in case that's not a yeah. sound financial plan. Um, well, if you are somebody who works in the uh, in the baseball industry, you may have found yourself uh, waking up to the news that you got to go somewhere else to keep plying your trade in the baseball industry. And that is because the 2023 Major League Baseball trade deadline has come and gone. You like that segue? I'm pretty proud of that segue. I got to be honest. That was a nice. You're messing it up now by acknowledging the segue. Just let the segue. I just want to be uh, credited for how good that segue was. I can't even let it pass without. Tyler, you should feel credited. (laughs) Now we can. (laughs) All right. So the trade deadline is now in the rear view mirror. We did not see some of the potential massive deals that we thought maybe we would see. Um, Obviously, the biggest outlier in all of that being Shohei Otani, which, uh, you know, as we discussed last week uh, or two weeks ago before he was pulled from the trade market, there would have been no package that could have even approached what Shohei Otani is actually worth uh, and ended up being a moot point anyway, he was not moved. The angels are going to make a go of it. Uh, and we will see how that plays out over the coming weeks and, uh, and the next really two months before we get into postseason play. Uh, but there were some top prospects moved and there were some, you know, I would say surprising deals. Um, the now richest team in baseball, at least in terms of their ownership, is sort of pulling the plug on trying to contend in the short term. The New York Mets started this season with Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander, and both of those guys are gone now. Uh, And they have brought back some pretty good prospect talent uh, in return. But, you know, uh, we'll see what that actually means going forward for the Mets. If I was a Mets fan and I knew that my uh, owner had been committed to spending all of the money on the planet in order to try to bring a World Series uh, to Queens, and then all of a sudden just decided like, nah, one half a season of trying is kind of worth it, and that's that, and we're going to move on now. Uh, I probably wouldn't be thrilled. Uh, But they did get some very good talent back in exchange for Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander uh, from the two Texas squads, the Rangers uh, and the Astros, respectively. Max Scherzer, now a member of the Texas Rangers, the front-running Texas Rangers for most of this season so far uh, in the in the American League West, uh, and the Houston Astros, who, of course, as we know, are more than likely to be in the ALCS, if not the World Series, because that's the way things have gone for the last uh, six, seven years. Sam, these are very interesting deals, and uh, we're not going to evaluate them, of course, from the major league standpoint, but rather from the minor league standpoint and what it means for prospects uh, trading places. Uh, You've got a story up on the site, the top 40 prospects traded ahead of the deadline, uh, and that is on MLB Pipeline, and the number one player on that list is a guy who did go to the Mets from the Texas Rangers, and that is Luis Angel Acuna, um, who is just 21 years old in Double A, but he's going to be the Mets' top prospect uh, upon your re-rank later on this month. He is obviously one of the highlights, um, but of the top five prospects who were traded, uh, a lot of those guys go into the White Sox, uh, three of them, in fact, and uh, or two of them, in fact, two go to the Mets, one goes to the Guardians. Give us sort of the 30,000-foot the view of the prospects who were moved, and then let's talk some specifics about these guys. Yeah, so I, I'm going to... 
not push back against something you said there, but in terms of like Steve Cohen spending all that money in the offseason and then making trades now, it's not ideal. Like the Mets spent all that money uh, to be competitive this year. It wasn't working, but they still used up financial might in these trades. I mean, you get back Luis Angel Acuna, you get back Ryan Clifford, you get back Drew Gilbert from the Astros because they were sending money the other way. I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I kind of wonder, especially in that Max Scherzer trade, like how negotiations went where it was like, all right, we'll throw in this amount of money. Okay, that gets you Sebastian Wolcott. All right, we're going to throw in this amount of money. Okay, that gets you Brock Porter. Like they just kept adding money to the point where they everybody felt comfortable. Like we can get to Acuna because it was a one for one. There's nobody else involved in that trade. It's Max Scherzer or Luis Angel Acuna. Same thing in, in the Astros deal involving Justin Verlander. They're sending a lot of money to get back Drew Gilbert, who's a top 100 prospect for us, uh, and Ryan Clifford, who in some eyes is kind of periphery top 100 prospect. I don't think he's going to appear on ours coming up, um, but I'm fascinated to see how he's going to end the year. He's certainly going to be in the conversation going into the offseason. So they they just gave money to get better prospects, and that's one thing the Mets have always talked about since ownership changed was like, Hey, we need to build up this farm system and be competitive. They could have made moves last off season, which involved trades. Like they could have traded away a Brett Beatty or an Alex Ramirez or, you know, some of their other deeper names. And Mike Vassell, who's now their top or going to be their top pitching prospect. They kept chose to hold on to those guys and spend money instead. Didn't quite work. Now they're trading those guys that they spent money on to build up the farm system even more. One of the tweets I got a lot, in the last few hours or last few days, last 48 hours was, are the Mets a top five farm system now? Are they a top 10 farm system now? I honestly, it's been a crazy week. I have not sat down and like plotted out where everybody is uh, in terms of farm system ranking. So I don't have a hard answer on that. Is the system improved? Remarkably so. Uh, you look at some of the names on that list right now. Kevin Parada, we have as the top prospect right now. He's going to come down off that spot like you were talking about. Acuna is going to assume number one. Um, Alex Ramirez has dropped out of the top 100. He's kind of trending the wrong way. I really like Jet Williams. Uh, Mike Bassel has certainly improved his stock, but like the system needed to get deeper, and it certainly has, and it has a higher ceiling with guys like Gilbert and Acuna now in there. So I won't say I like the idea of dealing two aces, especially Verlander. Like Scherzer's trending the wrong way. He's getting old. That, right. that happens. Right. He's a future Hall of Famer. Nobody's doubting that, but he was going the wrong way. Um, so to get Acuna for him and all that money is a, is a decent job by the Mets, I think. Um, Baffling thing, by the way, uh, Scherzer trending the wrong way and getting old. It's actually younger than Justin Verlander, as weird as that is. Yeah. yeah. Very strange. Very strange. Right. But anyway, I mean, they're, just, you know, they're two incredible generational talents. Um, right. And yeah, nobody's doubting that. But obviously, Easy things Cooperstown, Cooperstown right. first ballot, right? Yeah. And those guys are, you know, they have written just about everything in their stories that you could possibly want in a major league career. It's not done yet, um, but those are two guys who are sort of entering those twilight stages uh, or in the twilight stage of their professional careers. Yeah, and uh, one other trade I want to just while we're talking about the Mets, just kind of hone in on real quick was they they traded David Robertson, who was their closer this year because of the Edwin Diaz injury. Uh, and they flipped him. He was a re- essentially a rental. He's going to be a free agent in the offseason. Uh, for Marco Vargas and another catcher at the complex level. But Marco Vargas, 
I know some other places which do really good work and I and you know we can disagree on this stuff for now and that's fine. Marco Vargas isn't the top 100 guy now. He's probably going to have to perform at a full season level before we give that a full send. But if you want to get on the ground floor of somebody, he's somebody to do it with. I was really actually surprised that the Marlins were willing to trade him for David Robertson uh, and another prospect. The guy makes really good swing decisions. He's getting on base close to half the time as a, as a teenager who just moved stateside. Usually you see that culture shock. There's a little bit of time to adjust. He's looking like somebody who should see St. Lucie. And I mean, single A St. Lucie uh, by the end of the season, it, it's been really shocking to see how good he's been this year. So to get him uh, really deepens that system and adds some ceiling too. So I think the Mets did pretty well. Um, you look at the White Sox who you mentioned too, like, it's kind of depressing to me because I think the White Sox for years, we were like, Hey, they're building up something. Here. This is the Eloy. next team. This team yeah, is going to be a Jimenez, force. Yeah. Luis Robert, who Luis Robert is clearly their superstar. Like is very good. Um, but like Nick Madrigal didn't turn out. Right. They we're hoping. Yoan's a contributor, but yeah, right. isn't great. Moncada's been hurt a decent amount. And it certainly hasn't met the ceiling that everybody expected at him when he signed with the Red Sox all those years ago, Michael Kopech. I don't know if people ever thought he was going to be an ace, but like isn't quite there. Dylan Cease is a good pitcher, uh, but they were going the wrong way. So now they're kind of starting a rebuild again. And I wouldn't say there's anybody here that's like, oh, now he's their top prospect. Like nobody was going to take down Colson Montgomery, but or very few could take down Colson Montgomery. But you look at who they got, like Edgar Caro, um, who's going to be their number two prospect now. They got him the Lucas Giolito and Reynaldo Lopez deal. I like him to a certain extent. The Angels were certainly aggressive in sending him to double A, and he was getting on base there, but his slugging was going the wrong direction. He's not necessarily a great defensive catcher. Um, so if you believe in the bat and the fact that he's handled himself pretty well at such a young age, at an advanced level, like there's something to like there. But, you know, I'm just not a huge I, – I, he's probably coming down off the top 100. Um not off the top 100, but he's moving down it, I should say, when we do our update. Uh, I do like that they got Jake Eater. I don't love that they traded Jake Berger to get Jake Eater, but that's kind of a trade that I think hurts both sides. You think uh, that uh, you would think that if you were the Eater, you would consume the burger? burger. Yes. As, Eaters as, and burgers as, should be together. As they, you know? Jake's. Right, exactly. Like, it yeah. seems like such a logical. Next. Oh, I'm so sorry to both the eater and burger families for that joke. I was, that was terrible. I heard Ben and Sam make some, some cringeworthy jokes that you'll hear later on in this episode. And I had to jump on the bandwagon, but I did it first and mine was worse. And I'm regretting this already. This is why we recorded in the order that we do just so we can get our bad stuff out early, but late for the, but it airs later. And I, I take the fall. We're playing 40 chess is all I'm saying. Um, But like Jake Berger, Hits the ball really hard. I, I kind of like that Marlins, the Marlins who I don't think they're going to make the playoffs this year, but like they are going for it. They made moves to go for it. Good for them. Getting Robertson, getting Berger, making some other deals. Um, but yeah, Jake Eater, somebody who had Tommy John surgery a while back, broke his foot, I think, in the spring and was missing additional time on top of that. But when he's on, the fastball and slider can really get swing and miss. Uh, he was showing it recently at double A. So it, it almost feels like the White Sox are kind of buying low on him. Like he was just back on the upswing and he was a top 100 prospect at one point before the Tommy John surgery. 
could very well end up trending back there, although he's getting on the older side. Um, but by the time he makes his debut on the south side, might be his stock might be fully back up. Um, so like the White Sox, it's not a fully remade system. I don't want to go that far, but they added some pieces. It's just it's kind of depressing, like you were saying. You know, that you were hopeful that this young core could get them over the top, especially in a weak AL Central, and it just hasn't happened. The uh, other team that really pops up uh, in these rankings a lot, I mean, there are a few, and obviously it's going to be the teams who have uh, acquired talent because they were movers at the deadline, but um, the Guardians are in there. A good amount. The Guardians brought back some prospect talent. The Tigers brought back, I think, some really interesting prospects um, in their deals. But one team that I think people are probably most baffled by being in the position that they're in in 2023 is the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, they didn't move. Paul Goldschmidt, they didn't move Nolan Arnato, but they did move Jordan Hicks. They moved Jordan Montgomery, Chris Stratton. They brought back some uh, good pieces, but man, there were not a lot of people at the beginning of the season who would have expected the Cardinals of all teams to be offloading assets and acquiring prospect talent in the mode of a rebuild uh, at the deadline this year. Yeah, I mean, this this was shocking that they got to this point. As the season went on, it's not shocking that they did it, especially the, right. the people. Yeah, that that's a good trade. distinction. Yeah, like Jack Flaherty is going to be a free agent this offseason. It's going to be weird to see him in a Baltimore Orioles jersey for sure. Uh, but the fact that they traded him and got three prospects back is like something. Um, and I, they had to walk that line, right? Like there were rumors of Nolan Arenado going to the Dodgers that never went anywhere. And I don't think they were really going to pull that ripcord. Because as long as they can get some pitching back and I think get a little bit of better luck, get everybody on the page, same page, made some interesting moves in the offseason. The Cardinals could be right back there because AL Central is like a very easily winnable division, but so is the NL Central right now. Yeah. Brewers and Reds are having good years, but anybody really could have taken that. Um, so the, the moves that they made really helped stockpile their arms, getting to Koa Rabi, uh, Versa. Um, that I think those are some pretty big ones. I, I like Adam Klofenstein, although we have him ranked at number 22 now. Uh, Zach Showalter, who they got from the Orioles, has some really interesting traits with the way he throws the ball and uh, has a plus fastball and an interesting slider. I don't know if I would go above average on it quite yet, but there's some interesting stuff there for a guy who's 19 years old. And like I feel like for years we've talked about the Cardinals as a relatively deep system, and it was going the other way now. When you, have, when you graduate Jordan Walker, um, some of their arms haven't really pushed through. Gordon Graceffo was like top 100 guy to begin the year. He's come off since. Michael McGreevy is a strike thrower, but doesn't really have impressive stuff. Getting somebody like Roby, he has that ceiling. Now he's dealing with a shoulder issue now, and injuries have always been a concern. But like this Cardinal system feels more robust. It feels closer to what the Cardinals' MO has always been, which is like we're going to develop guys. And then we'll get other stars to fill in the pieces and we'll, we'll have that homegrown and stars feeling. I don't know if they're quite there yet, but the, the pieces are there for them to be a little bit more interesting. And again, like without sacrificing the long-term future of the club. So yeah, they, they, their top 30 is certainly deeper. Uh, I am working through right now, trying to rank it and like adding all these new guys to the mix has been fascinating because it's just like, well, I really like him and I really like him. And it's it's not they didn't add any top 100 names, um, but it's deeper. And that's a, that can only be a good thing for a system that was thinning out pretty quick. 
All right, Sam, among uh, these 40 or anybody else who was traded at the deadline, who is kind of the sneaky one that you're keeping an eye on as a potential eye-opening prospect? There's a a guy on this list uh, who, as we uh, discussed prior to the season, is a prospect that I love. I picked as a breakout guy. Uh, That's how you, Lee, who got sent to the Detroit Tigers from the Philadelphia Phillies in the Michael Lorenzen trade. You've got him at number nine on this list. He's the number six prospect in that Tiger system now. Um, But there are some other guys, you know, further down the list. The Mariners made a deal sending Paul Seawald out, which was uh, kind of a head scratcher. Uh, Paul Seawald has been really successful there. That's a team that's right in the hunt for a, a wild card spot. Still in the mix for the division as well. They're only six games back, uh, but they turned a, a closer into some prospects, sending him uh, to the D-backs in exchange for uh, some minor league talent. Uh, are there people who right now you look at this list and think he's not the headliner at the moment, but a few years from now, this guy could be a dude for one of these organizations? Yeah, there, there are a few I'll throw out real quick, just piggybacking off what you were saying from the Mariners. Um, I know there are people who like Dominic Canzone, uh, but I kind of liked Ryan Bliss a little bit more. And I know I'm a little bit on an island there. Dominic Canzone's like had a great year at AAA and has been productive at the major league level, so he can help Seattle immediately. Uh, I get that. But like Ryan Bliss was having a breakout season. Uh, he's really struggled in 2022. And I talked to him when I was in Amarillo because he was turning things around real quick even though they promoted him from high A to double A. And he said he was getting too steep in his swing path. It was causing him to hit catchable fly balls. That was hurting his batting average. Um, He's somebody who plays a capable second base. He can even fill in at shortstop, uh, but really needed to hit and was doing a much better job at that this year. So I think the Mariners are getting him at a good time. I was actually talking to a D-back source this week, and I was asking, like, who do you think in the system took a step forward this year? He's like, well, I was going to say Ryan Bliss. And then, well, and I was like, I know I, I wanted to rank him for Arizona and I no longer can. So I don't know if he's going to, we're going to look back at it as the Ryan Bliss trade. I mean, the power isn't really special, uh, but the, the contact rate has improved. The quality of contact has improved. He could be a potential long-term second baseman for Seattle, which is a pretty good get for a reliever. Another one I'll, I'll throw out there. And this trade kind of baffled me a little bit, um, was the Red Sox acquired Luis Arias from Milwaukee. Now, Luis Arias, I just saw in Nashville, and he kind of felt like he was surplus to requirements for Milwaukee. Uh, And yet the Red Sox traded a prospect who was going to go on their top 30 list. He's now number 15 for Milwaukee. Uh, Bradley Blaylock, who was a 32nd round pick in 2019. That round doesn't exist anymore. But the Red Sox talked him out of a Kennesaw State commitment with a $250,000 signing bonus. So he got paid like a much higher round pick, but he was coming off Tommy John surgery. The stuff has actually looked pretty good so far this year between single A and high A. Uh, He's got a fastball around 93 to 96 miles an hour. Um, You know, getting some info from his time in the Red Sox, there are certain people there prefer his slider. Milwaukee, when they acquired him, they singled out his power curveball as one of their favorite pitches for him. Um, but he's somebody who's just regaining his stuff. He's coming back from Tommy John and has been really successful and instantly plugs in as like one of the more promising arms in that Milwaukee system. So to get him for Rios, who I don't think was going to contribute meaningful at-bats to a contending club this year, 
Well, and was a little bit more of a project already immediately optioned uh, down to Worcester, I believe. Correct. So it's not as though it's a a move where you're adding a depth piece at the major league level because you're in need of someone who, you know, is going to be there. And obviously that division is in a a bizarre circumstance right now. Everybody is at least four games over 500. The Red Sox are six games over. Uh, They're only nine games back in the division. Uh, But to have gone out and made a move. And then all of a sudden, you know, that move is kind of strange in its own right. And then immediately you just turn a guy right back down to triple A is yeah, it was a, that was a, it was a strange. I think that's more of a paper move for now Could be um, because that's he true. was at Nashville. Like you just transfer over, right? You don't want, you, he doesn't get called up immediately and um, we'll see where things are going to shake out. For, I, I can't imagine maybe he like has to officially join the Worcester roster, but I, don't, I can't imagine he's going to be there for long, but still like it, it was just a fascinating yeah. Yeah. deal on both sides. Cause like we didn't expect the Brewers to be sellers, but if there was an opportunity and they get another pitching prospect, that's pretty good. Um, so keep an eye on Blaylock and bliss. I think. So major league baseball's trade deadline uh, in the books, which means it is now the final countdown. This really is a very exciting time of the year. Obviously, you know, rules have changed as far as roster expansion on September 1st and blah, blah, blah. Um, but this is when you really see the teams that are serious about contending, the teams that are serious about building something for the future. They now have a clear runway to the end of the year. Uh, and, you know, if you're a team that's in the hunt, we got some really fascinating postseason races right now. Um, the, the, the wild card races obviously have turned into something that gives so many teams hope uh, headed towards September and October that you can play your way into the postseason and get that boost for the organization that comes along with a playoff berth. And then there are other organizations that we're seeing now taking that step to realizing, no, maybe we are in a rebuild situation. Maybe we are uh, a team that needs to look three, four, five years down the road. Uh, And then there are some teams that are, you know, still just kind of hanging around being uh, teams uh, and with plans that are uh, questionable. But um, this is a fun time of year when that is passed and you know what you've got going forward toward uh, September and October with playoff races now fully throttled, I guess. I don't even know if that made sense. Um, But uh, Sam, if you had to pick right now, Nah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna put you on this. No, go. Let's do it. Let's do it. It's, I was gonna say we're in. Voltage. You know, we've got those. Uh, if the season ended today, graphics with here's your wild card matchups. Here's the the teams that are gonna be waiting for the wild card winners. Um, is there a team right now that you think could shock you into? I'm thinking about teams that are kind of hanging around. You know, the Chicago Cubs. They didn't trade away Cody Bellinger because that team is alive. There are three games back in the National League Central. There was nothing uh, early on this year that suggested that the Cubs were going to be a contender for that division, except for the fact that the division is not very good. Um, you know, the Reds are leading that division. The Pittsburgh Pirates, like, they started the season so well. There's, like, a little bit of hope in Pittsburgh, probably not for the playoffs this year, but I think there's something to be said for the fact that maybe the Pirates have something going on over the next couple of years. Um, you know, the, the White Sox, seem to have bailed on contending this season. Uh, now, you know, Liam Hendricks is though that guy hasn't been through enough. Now he's got to have Tommy John surgery. Uh, you know, the Tigers, uh, I don't know if we will ever figure out what the Tigers are at this stage. 
those divisions are very strange. The wild card races are very strange. You know, everybody in the American League East looks like a potential playoff team. They can't all make the playoffs. Uh, like, is there a storyline that you think come October 1st, we're going to be like, holy cow, that team made the playoffs? I don't, I'll put it this way, because this team is going to make the playoffs. So I, I feel confident in that. I think the team that we might look at and be like, oh, man, they were more of a juggernaut than we were expecting is the Orioles. And I do, I, that team I say is that no. 24 games over 500 right now. They right. are 66 and 42. Like how much fun are the, and they're doing it by the way, with a plus 57 run differential. They're a game and a half better than the Rays who have a plus 137 run differential. That's how the Orioles have been winning games this year. They've been doing things close. Uh, they've been playing thrilling baseball. Like that race between those two teams alone is super fun. And then you throw in the fact that the Jays are only six and a half back. Boston's nine back. The Yankees are 10 back. Um, yeah, man, the Orioles, like how much fun are the, Orioles? I'm excited to see Jack Flaherty on that team. Right. And it, it, I don't bring up the Orioles to be like, oh, it's a hot take that the Orioles are going to make the playoffs. And we're going to be surprised by that. I think what might be surprising is that they could still win that division. Cause there was a lot, and I'll include myself in this. I fully expected them to go for a big trade for a pitcher and Jack Flaherty is a good get, but he's not your ace. He's just, that's not why you go out and get Jack Flaherty at this stage in his career. Uh, so they didn't make moves and the Orioles at least publicly kept saying like, Hey, one reason why we might not make a big splash here and like cash in Colton Cowser or Jordan Westberg or some of these young bats that we have at the upper levels, because there's a real log jam up there is because they have a good core and they look, those guys like playing together. And you see that, I mean, they've been one of the most fun teams to watch this year. Yeah. Bird bath is hilarious. Yeah all the stuff they do in the dugout, there's a real cohesive unit there. And I think there's something to be said for that. Um, now, I would have liked to have seen them be in for like Eduardo Rodriguez. Maybe, yeah. you know, he he said no to a Dodgers trade and that's because he wanted to stay home. That's fine. Like maybe the Orioles approached him and it didn't work either. I don't know. I don't have any info on that. Um, but the Orioles were quieter than I think many were expecting. And yet I think they could still win that division. Um, and be playing for an ALCS like that, that, that could be pretty crazy just to see that re rebuild work as well as it has. Now they could get swept in the ALCS if like they don't have the arms and they run up against, I, I tweeted out this suggestion. Like, can you imagine Justin Verlander throwing to Adley Rutschman in game one of the ALCS? How cool would that be at Camden Yards? It might come out that he's pitching to Adley Rutschman, but Adley Rutschman might be in the box. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like that, and that's that's going to be a tough look for Baltimore when we get there. But um, the fact that we're having this conversation of like, why is Baltimore not buying? Yeah, is such a crazy flip from where we were eighteen months ago. Uh, and you know, they might be getting a really good version of Grayson Rodriguez right now. It seems like some of the minors uh, adjustments that he made are, are working, um, and that could be really special too. He was supposed to be their ace for a while; it hasn't quite worked out that way, but he's still plenty young and get him on the upswing going into the playoffs. And that, that's a big get in its own right. Well, we are uh, set for a very fun next couple of months of Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball. And, uh, of course, you can read Sam's story about the top prospects traded at the MLB trade deadline here in 2023 at MLB Pipeline. And uh, coming up, our interview conversation for this week, which I was not present for, but is a very fun conversation. Sam, tee it up for us. Yeah, so uh, obviously the Defenders of the Diamond uh, series this year in minor league baseball has been one of 
MILB's biggest initiatives uh, in terms of themed entertainment. So we brought on Brian Crosby, who has a baseball background in his own right, and we'll let him tell that story here very shortly. But he's the director of themed entertainment uh, for Marvel. Uh, and he's been heavily involved in some of the logos uh, and the whole theme across minor league baseball and the teams that have chosen to do Marvelized logos for this season. So here's me and Ben talking to Brian Crosby. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Well, we're really pleased on this week's edition of the show before the show to be joined by Brian Crosby, who is the director of themed entertainment for Marvel. Uh, and as many of you out there know, listeners, uh, this is the start of the Defenders of the Diamond initiative this year, seeing Marvelized logos on minor league baseball fields. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So so let's kind of get into you know, how this partnership kind of started, what's your background in Marvel and, and in baseball in general? <laughs> sure. Well, that, that that's a long, that's a long, answer. yeah, I know that's a very long, complicated process. Those things. But let's go back uh, in the way back machine here for a second. Um, so my, my background, um, I've been the director of themed entertainment for Marvel for about eight years now. Um, and my responsibilities are really to help oversee uh, the creative execution of any of our uh, events and experiences, uh, whether they be traveling or stationary or permanent, whatever, um, and uh, make sure that those look great and are great representatives of the uh, of the Marvel brand, and make sure they're engaging and fun for fans to participate in. Uh, but prior to coming to Marvel, I was a uh, an Imagineer for Walt Disney Imagineering. I was a concept designer there, so I was designing attractions and experiences, and that's what kind of led me into uh, this role at Marvel. Um, and in the past few years, uh, we've been really getting heavily involved in professional sports and uh, how we can do these Marvel superhero days and make them more engaging for fans um, and, uh, you know, allow for for Marvel to grow our fan base with those who might be sports fans and and maybe draw some more Marvel fans to sporting events and then hopefully turn some of the sports fans into Marvel fans. So it's just been this great kind of synergistic um, relationship that we've had with uh, all of the various professional sports leagues. And so with minor league baseball, we wanted to try something uh, a little bit different. So it was really uh, with, with the Marvel's defenders of the diamond program, it was less about infusing Marvel characters or intellectual property, if you will, into, into, into minor league baseball and more about what would kind of reimagining each of the, the different minor league baseball programs uh, through the lens of Marvel creators. So thinking differently about the logos and the mascots and things like that. So kind of creating not totally new identities, but creating a new logo uh, that would be handled by a Marvel artist. So this was a fun a fun challenge for us to think a little bit differently about how we would handle uh, a sports activation. Yeah, and, and um, you know, we should also mention your family has a deep background in, in baseball. Your brother, <laughs> certainly the manager of the Midland Rockhounds. Your other brother That's got right. drafted by the A's. 
uh, you know, when you found out that this was going to be a partnership? I mean, what was the the family reaction? Uh, well, the family reaction was I, I feel like I finally got approval from uh, my father and my my brothers as to what I do for a living. Uh, <laughs> be, being that I was the black sheep of the family that didn't get into baseball, my father played in the major leagues uh, from 1971 to about 1978 uh, with uh, St. Louis and Cincinnati and Cleveland with a few little pit stops at some other organizations in between. Then you mentioned my brother, Bobby, who was um, played for the Oakland A's and the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Arizona Diamondbacks and is now the the manager of the Midland Rockhounds. And my my other brother, Blake, uh, he's a scout with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, so everybody got into baseball and uh, I was the the weird one that started uh, drawing and getting into comic books and superheroes and that kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, finally blend uh, what I do for a living with what my my brothers and my family, my father have done for a living and create one kind of new new baby uh was was a lot of fun and uh you know and i i love the game so it was great it was a great fun for me too to be a part of it yeah well that's some uh synergy right there to combine <laughs> the family background and uh yeah, yeah. I guess you no longer have the black sheep status if uh, you're working <laughs> in the world of sports um yeah. you know and in the world of sports you know especially at the, the major league levels you know, sometimes the the athletes themselves are really the heroes or the superheroes. But in minor league baseball, where you know the players come and go, there's a lot more roster churn. You know, the heroes are often you know the mascots and based on these logos. So it seems like a world that is is ripe for you know marvelization. I don't know if that's the the verb we use, but um, you know, to really take the existing uh, logos and uh, visual nature of minor league baseball and uh, and work with that. So what was that process like? Um, with working with the clubs, the collaborative process, obviously different clubs operate in different ways, have different visions and different aesthetics. Uh, but what was the basic process like in, in working with a club and going back and forth to create these logos? Sure. Um, well, as an artist myself, before I ever put pencil to paper and start drawing anything, I, I think an extensive uh, deep dive into whatever that topic is, become subject matter experts uh, if you will. And so I think in, in, for this, for this program, what we wanted to do is really connect with the teams and understand what was important to them. Uh, you know, understand a little bit about the city. Um, what were some core attributes that they, uh, identified with, uh, what were the key colors and existing logos and, and, and things like that really understand the makeup of each of these teams. Um, so that when we did put pencil to paper and start drawing something new, it was still evocative of their identity as both a, a city and a community, as well as a team. Um, and so we did that deep dive with each one of the 96 different teams. And it was it was really educational for us uh, to learn about all these different cities and and kind of what they identify with. And um, that, that, that really made it fun um, so that we weren't drifting too far off the off the ranch with any one of them. Um, but that we were doing something that that spoke to them and spoke to their fan base. Um, but, you know, again, through through the Marvel lens. So we we did that deep dive um, research wise. And then we we'd start to ideate and do a few different uh, sketches of each logo. Uh, we usually would do about most of them were about three to four, maybe five sketches of each logo. Really different. Show some different uh, options, present it back to the team, let them respond and react. And then once we kind of felt like we were in the in the ballpark, so to speak, uh, in terms of what the what the logo was going to be, then our our artists uh, and I was one of them would start to really uh, flesh that out and come up with a design that that uh, that we'd be excited about. 
But then I think, you know, also working with minor league baseball in general, um, because we hadn't, we hadn't necessarily designed for hats. So that was a change for us. Um, you know, we have done some, some headwear and things like that, but I think for our artists, we were largely using people who came from the, the world of comic books who were used to drawing something that's going to be on the printed page, but drawing something that needs to be stitched onto a hat was a different, a different mentality. Uh, we had to, in some cases, simplify some of our designs, be bigger and bolder with, uh, our, our design choices and the shape uh, choices that we made. Um, so that was a, a little bit of a challenge as well, but you know, all, all good, all good creative boundaries to try and work within to create something new and exciting. Yeah. And for you as an artist, um, you know, is this kind of an issue that you dealt with before, you know, doing things like hats instead of, you know, the printed page, um, you know, were there adjustments to your own style and, and the way you did art, um, that maybe you hadn't, hadn't done before prior to this project? It, it was for me. Yeah, for sure. I, I had never had to make an adjustment exactly like this before in anything that I've done. Um, so, it, you know, it allowed me to flex some new some new creative muscles and try something different. Um, but, we, you know, any anything like this, any project like this is always a collaboration. It's always you know, it's it's never one person isolated alone doing a thing. It's a team. It's a team effort. Um, and so having to rely on on the teams for, for cr critical feedback and to minor league baseball to help us, you know, work through the design challenges of creating something that was going to live on a, on a hat and be stitched. Um, that was all, you know, great for us and, and really challenged me to, to think differently about my own art style and do something that would work for this particular medium. Yeah. And you touched on something interesting there in terms of, you know, the, each team has its own history. And when you yeah. guys are designing things and for comic books, you're dealing with canon. You're dealing with comic book history. How how similar were those things where there was like, hey, listen, there are certain rules for Captain America that you just can't break. There are certain rules for Team X you can't break. How similar was that aspect? Um, I, I don't know that it was similar exactly, but I think, you know, I, I, I do frequently like to have some kind of creative boundaries to work within. Um, you know, I think a, a popular phrase that people like to use is, you know, oh, we we're going to think outside the box. But in order to think outside the box, you have to first know what the box is, right? Right. You have to know, like, here are the guidelines, here are the boundaries, here are, here's kind of where we want to be, and then then we can see where we can push it a little bit, uh, do something that maybe is a little bit more dynamic, you know, nudge it a little bit in one direction versus another. But I think knowing what those guidelines are are helpful, and in some cases can inspire new creativity because you're having to. It's not a complete blue sky like it could be anything uh that is to me sometimes more challenging when something can be anything versus like it needs to be this it needs to be something in this area um so now i gotta come up with creative solutions so it, it, it was similar in that we were leveraging existing characters and and colors so you know i think you know you, you talked about the the marvel history anybody who works at marvel um, recognizes that we are standing on the shoulders of giants who came before us and created all of these amazing characters. And we're the current torchbearers to create something new and exciting, but still remains true to who those characters are. Uh, and not, you know, you know, stretch the toys, play with them, uh, you know, rough them up a little bit, but don't break them. Don't break the toys. And so, uh, you know, I think that's, those are, those are confines we're used to working in. Um, and so doing this was similar in that way, like you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one other aspect I'm interested to hear you talk about is in terms of that balance, 
of trying to like marvelize an already existing thing on their side or trying to baseball ball. I, I don't know if this is a, a baseball, baseball, eyes. baseball eyes. Yeah. <laughs> baseball eyes, a Marvel thing. And the, yeah. the two examples I'll provide is Reno. It's Mr. Baseball who already exists in the ballpark now becoming a superhero versus yeah. Rocket City, which is just, it looks exactly like Rocket Raccoon and it's a perfect thing. <laughs> How did you strike that balance when you were talking to the clubs? Well, I, I think, um, it was important that we stayed true to, 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 like I said, those team identities. Um, and you know, we, we, we didn't want to necessarily go the, the route of turning everything into a superhero, um, which I think can frequently get you into kind of, uh, like a stereotypical space of, you know, everybody's got to have a mask and everybody's got to have a cape and everybody's flying. And like, there are some, you know, some, comic book tropes or superhero tropes that we in some cases leaned into and in some cases we tried to avoid um and i think it's really just about finding the right the right tone for each of these each of these teams some of them lent themselves to leaning into those tropes and some didn't um and you know i think what we tried to avoid generally speaking was um doing anything that was uh, a, a real, an exact lift of an existing Marvel character. Um, so we weren't, we were, we were not trying to make a team look like, oh, it's kind of like Captain America. Um, you know, we were trying to create something new. So we almost tried to avoid thinking about Marvel intellectual property and more just bring our sensibilities of design and story to each of these, uh, each, each of these projects. So thinking about them as a completely new character was what made it fun and exciting for us. Yeah, and given your background and you know your your family's baseball background, um, you know, were there any teams you got to work with that you kind of knew going in, or you were particularly excited about being like, oh wow, I get to put my stamp on this team. It's one I'm familiar with, or one I grew up with, or, or that kind of thing. Was there you know personal connections with some of these? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know. I'd be lying if I didn't tell you I was excited to to jump in with the Midland Rockhounds. Just <laughs> of course, that's where, that's where my brother is, you know. So I, I did draw that one, and uh, so I was really excited to do that and to have my brother out there wearing the jersey and hat that I had designed. That was really kind of fun for me, um, you know. And then you know a lot of the teams that uh, you know, like I said, I'm from Southern California. I'm an Angel fan, so uh, you know, doing some of you know some of the farm teams for the Angels was cool too. Um, but other than that, you know, I think it was just, you know, which as I looked through the list, it was looking at some that spoke to me or I felt like I had a real take on, um, and, and, uh, being able to bring my own sensibilities to, to each of those designs. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm precious about all of them, uh, but especially the ones that I had a hand in, in drawing myself. Yeah. And a lot of these minor league teams and the, the names and logos they already have, um, you know, have pretty elaborate backstories and, you know, kind of zany names and, you know, big yeah. part of our jobs is trying to explain and contextualize this often <laughs> you know, confusing universe for, for people who are trying to learn more about it. Did you have those kind of experiences as well, where maybe a team you weren't as familiar with, where you kind of really had to do a crash course and, you know, wait, why are they the, you know, the trash pandas or whatever the case may be? For sure. Yeah. And they, there's some that lend themselves really well um, to a, a character of sorts um, that, you know, so you know, you mentioned the trash pandas or, you know, or like the Salt Lake bees where it's like, oh, I see you have a character already. And then we can take that and make it, make it look like something that came from a Marvel, a Marvel hand. Um, 
and and others it was a little bit more ambiguous you know um that were a little bit more challenging like uh like the stockton ports you know it was like like how do you how do you make that how do you you know to use your phrase how do you marvelize that um and so a lot of times we were looking at um beyond just the name but the mascots and and things like that um that they had maybe running around or you know the inland empire 66ers like you know how do you marvelize that you know as a as a as a logo um so some of them were a bit more challenging than others where there wasn't an obvious character that would come with it um but again those were uh creative challenges that that we tried to rise to yeah and the stockton uh, logo and character you're talking about um he is a would you call him a uh superhero of asparagus so this <laughs> these are the sort of things you learn in minor league baseball stock yeah yeah stock definitely you know I, I did draw that one and so that's why i can speak specifically to it but you know that was that was one that i uh, you know i i wasn't super sure about it you know <laughs> but uh but it resonated with the team and and i'm glad they liked it yeah and hopefully all, hopefully it resonates with the fans team. right i mean right. the fans tell us if we've succeeded or not you know i think anytime we come out with a with a, a new film or a new comic book project or a new video game, like the fans will are not shy about telling us, you know, you know, if they, if they dig what we're doing, if they dig the characters we've created, if they dig the story we're telling, and then they want to extend beyond just that story and buy the t-shirt or buy the jacket or whatever, by the action figure. Um, so hopefully the fans dig what we've created and they are, uh, they're they're wanting to represent these these different logos and whether they know they're marvel or not you know that i hope i hope they do um but hopefully they just think it looks cool and it's something they want to they want to represent yeah and you talked before about your excitement about seeing and working with angels affiliates you got to go to a game in, in salt lake recently right i did yeah that was that was a lot of fun so i i, I have family and friends up in up in the salt lake area so uh that was a lot of a lot of fun to go up there and um did a signing and got to throw out the first pitch and uh, see the players wearing wearing the the Salt Lake Bees gear, um, and I did a little how to draw uh, of that logo. So that yeah, I had a lot of fun up in Salt Lake. Yeah, and then speaking of doing like how to draws and stuff like that, I mean, is there any part of you that looks at hats now, whether it's minor leagues, whether it's any sport team, and see their logo and be like, I want to crack at that. I know exactly what I would do. Like, is there any part of you that finds that difficult to turn off of how you that now that you've done this for so many clubs? <laughs> yes um much like you know as I, I mentioned my background you know in uh theme park design um that part of you is not only hard to turn off it's i would say it's impossible to turn off right yeah. you look at everything experientially and this this kind of thing this drives my my wife crazy by the way you know just because you know i'm 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 it's like i have half of my brain is always there you know we go and do something like wouldn't that be cool if we did this turn this into an experience or that might solve a problem we had for another uh project but yeah having now gotten been able to play in this sandbox uh and to try something new with designing hats uh yeah there are some there are some logos and hats that i see around not just minor league baseball but professional sports that i maybe have some thoughts on <laughs> <laughs> well who knows what the possibilities are and that's right you all of know. the multiverses and universes and <laughs> that, that could present those opportunities for you but look i i've you know i never would have thought in a million years when i when i started drawing at disney that somehow some way i would end up 
here at Marvel and working with minor league baseball, like <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, pretty several times program. throughout you know throughout this project, I would turn to to my partners and go like, how did how did we get here? Like how did we <laughs> how did we end up in this place where this is what we're doing and how cool is this? Um, so yeah, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, we we say the same thing to ourselves quite a bit. Yeah, <laughs> like, what? It's the beauty of minor league baseball yeah. and Marvel—it's the type of crossover event we can all get behind. Well, Brian Crosby, yeah. thank you so much for joining us here on the show, and thanks for your work so far in all this and uh, and everything moving forward with Defenders of Diamond. My pleasure, and thank you again for having me. It's been fun. Well, now we pivot to one of my favorite segments that we get to do here on the show, because every week we have Benjamin Hill on to talk about his trips. And every once in a while, we get to catch him during a trip, which is what we are doing this week. Uh, ben has been traveling so far this week to Syracuse and Binghamton. He has stops coming up. Uh, he's actually driving right after this call to Scranton, Pennsylvania, or Musick, Pennsylvania, if you want to be even more specific. Uh, but Ben, you are currently in a park in Binghamton outside a carousel, which holds a special place for the name of the Rumble Ponies. That's also the most, the, that's the creepiest description we've ever had of where Ben is, by the way. You oh, are in, gonna, a, also get, in a park hanging outside a carousel, aren't you? This is true, and it's going to get creepier. <laughs> uh, so stay tuned. Well, how are you, Ben? How, how is everything on the road so far? Yeah, it's been going great. Like you said, uh, I've seen games in Syracuse and Binghamton, and now I am in Binghamton's Recreation Park because this is the site of uh, one of six carousels in the Binghamton area. And because there's so many carousels in the Binghamton area, that's what inspired the name of the minor league team, AA affiliate, AA affiliate of the Mets, the Rumble Ponies, the Rumble Pony being a carousel horse. And the reason there's so many carousels in Binghamton is because a wealthy industrialist businessman, whoever from many, many years ago, uh, I think his name was George Endicott. I got to look into that. Um, but you know, he made a lot of money in the region and this is a gift to the community is all these various, uh, carousels, which again, inspired the team name, but this carousel that I chose that I'm standing by right now that I wanted to visit before I left Binghamton, uh, has another connection in that Rod Serling creator of the twilight zone is grew up in Binghamton and this carousel, which is to my right and a gazebo that is to my left, uh, play prominently in the Twilight Zone episode Walking Distance, in which a man returns to his hometown and finds nothing has changed. And it's, of course, unsettling and creepy. So I'm standing here by this uh, carousel that was in the Twilight Zone episode and a gazebo that was in the Twilight Zone episode. The gazebo's seen better days, but it has a plaque right in the center that says Rod Sterling, creator of Twilight Zone, Walking Distance. So, um, yeah, a lot of American history to digest right here as I stand at Recreation Park in Binghamton, New York. Yeah, that, that's great. And let's start with your first stop on this tour um, in Syracuse. You know, going to see the Mets there, their Triple A affiliate. You are currently in the home of their Double A affiliate. Um, what stood out to you about the the trip to to see the Syracuse Mets? Yeah, you know, I it only been four years since I've been to Syracuse, which by my standards, trying to visit as many places as I can. Uh, the relative blink of an eye. Uh, but in that time, uh, the team has done a lot of improvements to their home of NBT Bank Stadium. These were improvements that uh, got underway even before the reorganization of the minor league, of minor league baseball and the new facility standards. Uh, it was designed to be a project that took place over the 2020 season and 2021. 
but then of course 2020 didn't happen so that worked out for the team in the sense that they were able to keep improving the stadium while they didn't have a season going on and uh, I don't know how many <laughs> thousands hundreds of thousands of gallons of paint they must have used uh, with so much uh, orange and blue coloring now throughout the ballpark uh, representing the Mets colors of course um, there's a new bullpen bar in left field, a new uh, deck in right field, and below the deck is a team hall of fame because, uh, you know, baseball in Syracuse goes back to the 1870s. There's a lot of history, and it's cool to now, you know, dedicated history area that's open to the public. Um, so that ballpark, which opened uh, the better part of 30 years ago, I think in 1995, 96, uh, you know, is looking uh, really good these days. And it was great to be in Syracuse. Um, spent a lot of time with the GM, Jason Smorrell, one of the uh, more exuberant general managers in minor league baseball. Always great to see him. Uh, you know, got a tour of the facility. Spent a good amount of time with my designated eater, a guy named Eric Silfies and his friend. Uh, oh, what was his friend's name? I'm sorry, friend of designated eater. I'm forgetting. But they're both engineering students at uh, Syracuse University. And uh, pierogi. There's something I learned about pierogi. There's never a plural. So even if you are eating multiple pierogi, it's just pierogi. It's not pierogies. And that's something I learned and that Jason, the GM, was very adamant about. But they, uh, they, they serve pierogies at the ball, oh, pierogi at the ballpark uh, in deep-fried varieties and in uh, regular varieties. Uh, have a standalone stand. I think that was one of the highlights of the food. And I, I talked to some uh, longtime season ticket holders who also work at the Team's Hall of Fame, who share their love of the team uh, through working in the Hall of Fame and uh, sharing uh, the history of the ballpark. So, you know, that night in Syracuse flew right by. Uh, great to see people again and meet people and uh, see some pierogi, learn about pierogi, no plural. Well, Ben, um, to be in that area and to be able to explore, um, I don't say one of the, certainly not one of the forgotten areas of minor league baseball, but it's one of the places that I think has some of the earliest history in minor league baseball. What are minor league baseball fans like uh, in upstate New York? Cause it's something where, you know, those franchises have been around since in a lot of cases, uh, at least in some iteration and since the late 1800s um, it's such a different established minor league baseball culture. And obviously you've been up there a bunch of times, but um, what is that like for fans who have not been to uh, you know, Binghamton or Syracuse or Rochester or elsewhere, what are fans like and what is the the feeling like when you go to a game there compared to say a game in the in the southeast or a game out in the west coast? Yeah, you know, I find in like the southeast and then some of the comparatively newer environments, um, especially newer ballparks, you have you know louder stadiums, maybe more like um, intense fan bases, just in terms of uh, you know coming out the ballpark and yelling a lot and just being really into you know the sensory overload of uh, the music over the PA and the and the video board and everything going on. Um, you know, th I see that culture more in the, in the South and Southeast here. Yeah. You do have these teams that go back to the 19th century, these communities where they just passed on baseball from generation to generation to generation, a history with some of these teams like Rochester and Syracuse being publicly owned with local stockholders, you know, so fans, you know, actually owning a share in the team. So there's a real sense of uh, pride and ownership uh, in baseball around here. And, you know, the demographics of the region have changed in a lot of these cities, you know, the industrial era boom times followed by a bit of a post-industrial collapse and then reinvention. And so the future of baseball has not always been secured in some of these places, but I think that deeply ingrained love of baseball 
and its long, long, long history has helped keep it going. And uh, it's you can definitely meet people who've who've been enjoying it their whole lives, whose parents, grandparents, great grandparents were also huge baseball fans, and who see it as you know a big part of their identity and something that's very, very important to the region. That's another thing I was going to ask you about is that is one of the very few places uh, in the country in which we do have publicly owned teams. Uh, And if you can expound on that a little bit and explain, you know, to people who are new to the podcast, maybe I think in the the pre MLB takeover era of minor league baseball, we talked about this, but uh, you know, there are teams that are community owned out there, which is not something that's super common across minor league baseball. What does that mean to those fan bases that it's not just, Oh yeah, we grow up, you know, cheering for these teams and going to these games and all that but actually this is a community staple because this is something that people take literal ownership in uh as opposed to just you know a fans type of ownership yeah i mean well in syracuse you know the mets own the team now but i think part of that sale was literally you know fans cashing out on you know shares of the team that had been in their family for for decades and decades and you know in rochester the number oh i forget what it is but the number eight thousand something is retired at the ballpark uh, for a man named Maury Silver, who led a stock drive to save the team when it was in danger of right. moving. And that's the number of, number of shares that he sold in the team. Um, so it's not a very common thing now, uh, community ownership. Um, you know, we used to see it in like smaller environments in the Midwest League as well. I know Beloit had that going for a while. Uh, Wisconsin Timber Rattlers had that going for a while in Appleton. Um, but I think it speaks to an era of minor league baseball yeah, where it was, uh, you know, a little, not as big money, um, you know, more grassroots and, you know, it's still grassroots, but even more grassroots, uh, where having a team really was, uh, an example of putting your money where your mouth was, is (laughs) your mouth is always in the same place. Um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, ponying up and, and owning a share in the team. And that gives you a sense of pride. I mean, you even see that with, you know, today, you know, with like green Bay. I mean, I know if you own, (laughs) a share in the Green Bay Packers. And it's largely symbolic, but I still think that gives uh, people such a, a sense of ownership. And it's just such a cool memento to have this, you know, certificate that says, you know, Hey, I'm a part owner of a team of a professional sports team. And this shows how much I care about it or how much my family has cared about it through the years. Yeah. And Ben, I wanted to ask about, you know, the first two stops on this trip are both Mets affiliates uh, in central and, and Western New York. Uh, or, you know, I know it's a touchy subject to talk about what that region is actually called, but Syracuse and Binghamton being not within the same state as New York, but still a few hours away. Um, but what is it like to, to see Mets fandom there? I know Binghamton's been a Mets affiliate for a while, Syracuse, since two, 2019. I was watching a clip of Terry Collins the other day, and it was weird to see him talk about, like, we'll call some guys up from Las Vegas, remembering what that time was like when Mets – had to call up guys from the entire other coast. Um, but w- how much does Mets fandom affect uh, folks up in that particular area? Because I, I think they're probably technically closer to Toronto than they are New York City. Yeah, I mean, I think in Syracuse you have a mix of Blue Jays fans, but also a lot of Yankees and Mets fans. I think that's, uh, I don't want to say a problem, but the fact that there's always been two you know, New York-based major league teams makes it so you know, Syracuse or Binghamton, you know, they often have fans of the Yankees and not the Mets specifically, which might make it hard for local fans. I talked to some of them, you know, local fans who are Yankees fans at the major league level, but then find themselves rooting for, you know, a Mets affiliate and then kind of feeling conflicted when, 
you know, a Subway series or an extreme example, the 2000 World Series, you know, being conflicted because it's like, oh, these are these guys I saw come up through the system and I, I love them, but also the Yankees are my team. So it does create a bit of that disconnect, but also there's a lot of, it's New York, it's still New York State. And even though we're a couple of hours away from New York City, um, there's obviously a lot of Mets fans here. So if you are a Mets fan in central New York, I mean, what a great situation that you have the AAA and AA affiliates. Uh, within roughly an hour drive of one another. I was thinking this on the drive yesterday between Syracuse and Binghamton. I was like, I don't know. I have to look at a map, but I don't know what kind of town is, you know, kind of uh, equidistant from Syracuse and Binghamton, but how cool it would be if you're a Mets fan who could drive 25 miles north and see the AAA team or drive 25 miles south and uh, see the AA team. So there's a, a lot of opportunities there from a fan level. Uh, to root for these players before they get to Queens. And then I was thinking to myself in the car, I was like, this is just a larger philosophical question. Would you rather live 25 miles away from two minor league teams or within five miles of one minor league team? You know, people are going to have different opinions. Would you rather be real close to one, so it's super easy to get there all the time, or would you have rather have a little bit of a drive to get to two? But uh, here in central New York, you, you do have a lot of options. And Syracuse and Binghamton are obviously uh, two prominent ones. Um, all right, Ben, we'll, we'll preview what else is coming on the trip. I know you have that stop to, to Musick slash Scranton dash Wilkes-Barre. Uh, what else are you looking forward to the rest of the way? Yeah, well, I won't be in Binghamton much longer, but it was great to be in Binghamton last night, uh, especially because, uh, you know, that is a team, just like the Erie Seawolves, also in the Eastern League, that when the reorganization of minor league baseball was happening, there was a lot of uh, uncertainty and angst that, you know, this team would, you know, maybe continue or not continue uh, as an affiliated team. So to be in Binghamton is great to see a smaller market with an older ballpark built in 1992, you know, still hosting minor league baseball is great. Um, and I just really like those kind of towns and communities, but then yes, moving on uh, to, as you said, technically music PA, but that is uh home of the scranton wilkes Rail Riders. I'll be there on Thursday, today, as we're speaking, August 3rd. And I'm looking forward to that. As I've mentioned in the past, you know, my first minor league games as a kid uh, were in the late 80s, early 90s, seeing the scranton wilkes Red Barons. So I have a, you know, kind of a emotional, personal connection to the region and to that ballpark, even though the ballpark I went to in the late 80s and early 90s was essentially like torn down and then rebuilt, but it's in the same place and it's still a AAA International League franchise. It was the Phillies uh, when I was a kid, and now it's the Yankees. The uh, Rail Riders are a AAA Yankees affiliate. And then I will go see the Phillies AAA affiliate in Allentown, Pennsylvania, Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs on Friday, August 4th. And they are playing as the Scrapple, you know, paying homage to a fried meat mush, which uh, is a very minor league baseball thing to do. But looking forward to be, being back in Lehigh Valley. And that's a team that's obviously just pretty much killed it from their debut in 2008 just one of the strongest minor league franchises out there and for me who grew up uh in suburban uh philadelphia i do have again a little bit more of a connection to these areas i don't feel like i'm at home necessarily but a trip like this feels local to me from a minor league ballpark road trip perspective so i feel a little more relaxed uh than i do when i'm you know flying somewhere and renting a car and somewhere you know totally uh new to me or just a, a region i'm not as familiar with 
Benjamin Hill, who is on the road right now. Uh, ben, travel safe. Enjoy the rest of the trip. And I uh, can't wait to hear all about the remaining pieces of it when uh, you return to the office slash the, the normal Zoom setup uh, next week. Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to being home and looking forward to then getting back on the road and, you know, all the conflicting emotions of uh, handling day-to-day life during the season. But for right now, it's great talking to you guys from Binghamton, New York, Recreation Park, which, by the way, is on Beethoven Street. That's another thing I have to look into. Why is this street in Binghamton, New York named Beethoven Street? Beethoven um, Street, maybe named after a man yeah, maybe. composing his future in the Twilight Zone. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe there's just other people named Beethoven out there. I mean, could Beethoven be. can't be the only Beethoven. We just think Beethoven, that just means one person. Like This, Jesus, is, but this like, is like a Fred <laughs> Beethoven. This, this is a guy yeah. who just like he owned a service station uh, down the street yeah, in Binghamton. Yeah. He, was a, he was a pillar of the community, Fred Beethoven. Yeah, it might be him. So if it is Fred Beethoven, like <laughs> shout out to you. You got a street named after you. And, uh, you know, you might not have been a Ludwig, but hey, you did pretty well for yourself. I was just going to say, I, I, it sounds like you're in a major area of the city. Uh, yeah, yeah, that joke fell a little flat, Sam. I thought uh, it was sharp, but you know, that's just me. Oh, no, you're a sharp guy. I thought my Twilight Zone impression was going to be the worst thing about the end of this segment. <laughs> Music joke. We'll, we'll, we'll give it a rest. Thanks, man. Thanks, guys. this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of ghosts of the miners now here's your correspondent and host joshua jackson welcome back to ghosts of the miners in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair one once ran a muck on the base paths the others never went anywhere at all. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Elkhart Eagle Eyes. B. The Beaver Falls Bees. C. The Caribou Bear Cubs. Haven't you been busy if you picked B. The Beaver Falls Bees. Not the bees! Ah! I'm love my buzzed about the Pennsylvania State Association from 1937 to 1941. Beaver Falls, the finest damn city in the Keystone State's Beaver County, lies along the Beaver River, just a few miles north of its confluence with the Ohio River, which is in turn just a couple dozen miles north-northwest of Pittsburgh. You may think that in the backyard of such a historically great baseball city, the Bees could not have been the first Miners franchise to take flight. You may be right. As far back as 1907, Beaver Falls begat the Beaver Falls Beavers of the Western Pennsylvania League. But our Beavers Falls team came into being with an affiliation of the Boston National League team. Known as the Boston Braves for most of its history, but rebranding as the Boston Bees, a name that came from the fans, from 1936, the year before the Beaver Falls Bees were birthed, through 1940. 
The Pennsylvania State Association sought to expand from six teams to eight teams ahead of the 36 campaign, with Beaver Falls a likely newcomer as a Reds affiliate if the school board could be persuaded to lease the high school field to a minors team instead of the usual industrial team that played there. New Kensington and Ford City were also in play for a new association club, but as things turned out, the circuit only managed six teams again, looking exactly the same as it did in 35, save for the Jeanette Little Pirates replacing the Washington Generals. But that was all under the bridge when our Beaver Falls Bees debuted in 37, cross-pollinating with the Greensburg Green Sox, the Butler Yankees, the Manesson Cardinals, the Jeanette Bisons, and the McKeesport Tubers for a third-place finish. In 38, the Beaver Falls Club played under the umbrella and the name of the St. Louis American League team. And the team would buzz back and forth between being called the Browns and the Bees over the seasons to come. Bees again in 39, Browns again in 40, Bees again in 41. The identity crisis was hardly the only conflict Beaver Falls fell into. On June 6, 1940, player-manager Frank Oshiek got into a violent altercation with umpire Len Buger. Only those present, if those, can say exactly what happened, but the team's chairman, W.E. Milliken, and business manager R.J. Stoops contacted the police and signed an arrest warrant against the ump. The police hauled Buber away from home plate and held him in custody for several hours as he was unable to pay bail and was only released upon signing a statement accepting blame for the fight. Elmer Daly, president of the Pennsylvania State Association, fined Oshiek 50 bucks and, despite threats that the Beaver Falls team would withdraw from the league, suspended him for 10 days. But Daly also suspended Buger, the ump, for 90 days. During the 40-41 offseason, to the outrage of Daly, baseball commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis investigated the incident and, citing the need to protect umpires in the minor leagues, not only ordered the league officially revoke Buger's suspension, but pay him in full. That was a hill of beans compared to the rest of K. Mountain Landis's decree that Oshiek and Beaver Falls team president Reverend Father Casey be suspended for a year, and Milliken and Stoops, the club officials who signed the arrest warrant on Buger, be banned for five years. The Beaver Falls organization was also fined $500, or over 10,000 bones in 2023 dollars. But the war between Beaver Falls, Buger, and the head of baseball was only a bit of a brouhaha in the shadow of global events. The societal demands of World War II stopped many minor leagues altogether in 42 and cut the Pennsylvania State Association down to four clubs, Beaver Falls not being one of them. In 43, the league never got started, and it never formed again after the war either. And thus ended the flight of the bees of Beaver Falls. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these clubs wild away the hours in the miners of yesteryear? A. The Canton Watchmakers. B. The Newburn Cuckoo Clocks. C. The Cairo Sundials. Want to know the answer? Check the time. Or tune in for the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, is out on the town with Enrico Caruso, and their conversation is about to take on a new tenor.
And wrapping up this week's episode of the show before the show podcast, big thanks to Josh Jackson for stopping by. And uh, before we get out of here, minor league baseball showcases its best and brightest on MILB.TV. And of course, minor leagues on MLB TV. Sam, what are you watching for free this week or uh, not for free this week? What are you watching on uh, MILB.TV? Yeah. So this weekend, I have been told Dylan Cruz is going to Fredericksburg. Now they said this when he signed, like they're not going to skip him above Fredericksburg because they would send him to high Wilmington, which he could easily do well at. But like Wilmington is such a pitcher's park. They don't want him going there and like hitting 210 over 10 games. I don't don't think Dylan Cruz can hit 210 anywhere, but still they want him getting in on the ground floor, getting a good base of pro success. So they're going to have him at Fredericksburg. I'm told he's going to debut this weekend, which is great because this weekend Fredericksburg is in Fredericksburg and will be on MILB TV. So keep an eye out for news on which day he's exactly going to be debuting. Uh, but he should be there this weekend. The LSU star helped the, the Bayou Bengals win a national title, number two overall pick. Some people thought he was the best overall talent in the draft. Other people thought it was his LSU teammate, Paul Skeens. Judge for yourself. Get to see him in pro ball this weekend, uh, Dylan Cruz. So keep an eye out for that Fredericksburg broadcast. And it's also, just as an aside, Fredericksburg's broadcast is very good. It's very crisp and clean, for, especially for the single A level. Um, they do a good job of showing velos on the board, which is great, especially if you're watching a Harleen Susana uh, start, because that guy can hit 102 with no problem. Doesn't always know where it's going, but it's fun to watch. Uh, so, yeah, tune into Fredericksburg at some point this weekend and catch you some Dylan Cruz. Tyler, you're watching another really, really gifted outfielder. Yeah, uh, and uh, a couple of very, very gifted prospects, uh, number ones in each system. Toledo, the Detroit Tigers AAA affiliate, will be taking on Iowa, the Chicago Cubs AAA affiliate. Top-ranked Cubs prospect Pete Crow Armstrong uh, up at AAA for the first time this week. He will be in action uh, and top-ranked Tigers prospect. Colt Keith will be uh, on the field for the Toledo Mudhens. Uh, Pico Armstrong, the number seven overall prospect in baseball. He hit 307, 391, 640 in July, hit five homers, got the promotion at AAA Iowa. Uh, and MLB's number 38 prospect is uh, that very top-ranked Tigers talent, Colt Keith, who was promoted to AAA at the end of June. So two guys who were in the early days of their AAA stays. Colt Keith, not quite as much as, uh, as PCA. But uh, those two guys will be going at it this weekend uh, on MILB.TV. So that'll do it for this week's episode of the show. Before the show, for Sam Dykstra, for Benjamin Hill, for Josh Jackson, and the rest of our crew at MILB, my name is Tyler Mon. We'll catch you next week. Bye.